following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. It's my uh, honor this morning to welcome to this place our guest speaker. Um, have you ever read a bio and thought to yourself, what have I done with my life? <laughs> That's kind of how I felt I was, as I was reading through her, her bio here. But um, uh, Becca is the assistant director of um, Camp Whitman, which is out on Seneca Lake. Their mission statement is to live for those who are longing for belonging, seeking connection with community and creation, respite from chaos and competition, and an opportunity to encounter both the Holy Spirit and themselves. Um, she's currently enrolled in the Masters of Divinity program at Colgate Rochester Crozer Divinity School, and I think working towards ordination in the Presbyterian Church, correct? Um, she also holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in English and Art History from Boston University, and two Masters of Arts degrees from American University in Washington, D.C., one in teaching and the other in international peace and conflict resolution. Um, prior to seminary, <laughs> believe it, it keeps going. Prior to seminary, Becca worked for 17 years as a teacher of high school and college English and ESL, not just here in the U.S., but also abroad in China, Honduras, Romania, and, and Qatar. Um, she has many publications to her credit in the areas of education, faith, and peacemaking. Um, and beyond that, she does volunteer work here in the Rochester area as a court-appointed special advocate in Rochester on behalf of children in the family court system. Um, she also serves as a member of the More Light Committee of Third Presbyterian Church Rochester, where she has worked for the inclusion of LGBTQIA plus individuals in the church, dom- denomination, and community. Um, she also assisted in the organization of the city's Transgender Day of Remembrance event in November 2020 and November 2021. In addition to all of that, um, maybe, maybe above all of that, she's a, she's a friend of our own Je- Pastor Jesse and, and a friend of ours in church. So would you welcome with me Becca Ferguson Lutz? It's so great to be here with you this morning. (sighs) Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Um, I am thrilled to be here. I am also exhausted because we just finished our final session of the peak summer season at Camp Whitman. And so I've been working like crazy for the past seven weeks. And so this weekend for me is like 10 p.m. on Thanksgiving when all the dishes are finally washed and all the food has been put away in the refrigerator. And Thanksgiving is in many ways an appropriate analogy for camp life because there's a ton of preparation and psychological buildup. The event itself goes too quickly. No one wants to clean up. You're always amazed at how much garbage you can make in one day. Um, Some of your Thanksgiving guests are people that you've waited all year to see. And some of your Thanksgiving guests are people that God has clearly put in your life to teach you forbearance. Um, But... I love my job at Camp Women, and through my job there, I've had the pleasure of getting to know several of the Artisan Church members, including your youth members, um, Jesse, Kristen, Eloise, Gus, and Trixie. Um, 
I want to begin by situating myself in the theological process. I know that you expect the preacher to make bold prophetic claims. And there are times when I do that. Well, I think they are bold prophetic claims, but um, I know that you expect the preacher to make statements of religious and spiritual and moral and ethical certitude. I know that you expect the preacher to bring some ray of clarity into your life. And I know that you expect all these things because I expect the same from a preacher. The pulpit is a sacred space and preaching is a sacred privilege. But my years as a classroom teacher and my work as a camp director have showed me that often questions are more useful than answers. There are some matters about which I am unequivocal, and I have no, ma no, no hesitation to share with you those things, but I have come to learn that a posture of questioning is actually much more useful in ministry and in life. So on this day and on this topic, I come from a place of questioning, even when I make a lot of declarative statements. Uh, I have always been a questioner of God and of other people. I was that kid that made every Sunday school teacher rip their hair out. What I have to offer are not proclamations or even well-developed theories I have some hypotheses and a lot of research questions. And I have so many of these questions because of the life that I have lived. I'm exvangelical, like many of you. Although I was born in Rochester and raised in Livingston County, I have lived overseas for much of my adult life. After college, I joined the Peace Corps, where I served for two years in Romania. After that, I came back to the U.S. for a few years and worked as a newspaper reporter. And so I was paid to ask questions, uncomfortable questions of people in power. I later became a high school English teacher, and I spent all of my 30s living overseas in Qatar and Oman and Honduras and China. And when I was living overseas... I was not only trying to get my grocery shopping done and my oil changed and my teeth cleaned in a new language and a new culture, but I was trying to understand myself as an American and as a woman and a teacher and a Christian. Going to church and living out my faith in Romania and Qatar and China and Honduras was not straightforward. And in the process of trying to figure out who I am or who I was or who I was being called to be or who I am being called to be, and in the process of keeping myself spiritually fed in those very different contexts, in fed in whatever ways I could, I began to realize how American my faith was. I am not a jingoist. I consider myself patriotic, but to a healthy degree. 
I think I am appropriately critical of U.S. public policy uh, at times. I am appropriately proud of U.S. public policy at other times. But I do recognize now the ways in which the imagery and the ideology of the United States has made me a certain kind of Christian. Much of what I understand about God and the way God works has been shaped unknowingly and unwittingly by this. We all sit in the middle of a Venn diagram. One circle is our nationality, our culture and our upbringing, our suppositions about government and economies and the ways that societies can and should operate. And the other circle is our religion, our faith, which is also our culture and our upbringing and has carries with it suppositions about governments and economies and the ways that societies can and should operate. So this morning I'm asking you to occupy that strange liminal space in the middle of the Venn diagram where you can see yourself as a product of US society, as an American or a resident of the United States, and as a citizen of heaven, as a Christian. These two circles do not overlay one another completely, nor are they completely separate spheres. But I believe that if we can sit in that strange liminal space and become aware of the ways that our nationality has shaped the way that we think and live and move and operate in this global society, I think we will be better citizens of both our literal homeland and better citizens of our spiritual homeland. I believe that when we parse the two, we will be more faithful to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and better contributing members of our human society in this time and in this context. So, first of all, it should come to no surprise to any of you, Americans are rugged individualists. I think that all American Christians no matter the tradition or the denomination, have a clear and powerful narrative around personal sin, but a very undeveloped narrative for collective sin. In fact, in many US churches, there is no language for collective sin and therefore no discussion of it. There is no discussion of systems you are responsible for yourself and yourself alone. God sees and knows the contents of your heart. Okay, that's not wrong, but it's overly simplistic. 
God also sees and knows the machinations of groups and whole societies. And I believe that we are equally accountable for the misdeeds of our communities as for our own personal misdeeds. Because the Hebrew Bible is filled with instances of God reckoning with the sins of a nation. I would hazard a guess that 80% of God's directives in the Old Testament are about collective sin. We don't even know how to talk about that. We have learned to atone as individuals, but not as a collective. And let me be clear, I do believe strongly that at some point we have to all make a personal decision for Christ. We accept the gift of salvation. Particularly when you work with children and youth and young adults, you realize how important it is that your faith is your own. Romans 10 tells us that if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. But here's the flip side. The captivity to individualism in the West leads many to reject the possibility of institutions and systems inflicting social harm that requires social responses. If this sounds very intelligent, it's because this is, these are the words of the Reverend Dr. Sun Chang Ra, who is a noted theologian and scholar of missiology at Fuller Theological Seminary. And he wrote, along with Mark Charles, an indigenous pastor, a book called Unsettled Truths, The Ongoing Dehumanizing Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery, that has helped me to decenter and deconstruct and reconstruct my faith in so many ways. I'm a proud member of the Presbyterian Church of USA, and I'm a candidate for ordination in that denomination. And I'm going to air a little bit of the church's dirty laundry, which might be professional self-sabotage, but here we go. So in 1970, the PCUSA created the Committee for the Self-Development of People. I've always thought this was a really strange name and actually quite offensive. We have a special fund to help people develop themselves. This implies, therefore, that they are poor because they are underdeveloped. But as with many church committees that were created by other church committees or commissions or working groups, uh, what was ultimately the Committee for the Self-Development of People began as something completely different. It started with a call from civil rights activists, among them Gerard Wilmore, the noted Presbyterian pastor and 
former, uh, former professor at Colgate Rochester Crozier Divinity School. It began as a call for, uh, or called to respond faithfully to the question of reparations for slavery. So in the late 1960s, many white Presbyterians in the North and the South could accept that slavery had actually been a very bad idea, even if they and their forebears had actively defended and supported it in decades past. But they couldn't handle a form of collective penance. So what started out conceptually as a fund by which wealthier white Presbyterians would bolster poor black communities took on this really bizarre teach-a-man-to-fish logic. So instead of supporting black communities whose members had no generational wealth to pull from, and instead of investing in black-owned enterprises as a contemporary response to the biblical mandate to collectively atone, the Presbyterian Power Center couched it in the rhetoric of self-development. And despite the best efforts of activists to push forward the idea of reparations as a form of collective atonement, the result was that was an initiative that reaffirmed and in fact doubled down on the idea of individual self-determination. We are still grappling with this question as a denomination and as a society because we still don't have the rhetoric or the conceptual framework for collective sin. By the way, I fully support teaching a human to fish. But you better make sure that the river is clean and that poles are readily available at affordable prices and that someone is at home taking care of that human's babies and elders while they're out fishing. Because if you're not willing to care for the environment and create a fair economic playing field, you might as well just give that person a fish because you're setting up for them for failure anyway. That is my economics 101. Um, speaking of economics, we are capitalists. That is actually one of the 100 questions in the question bank uh, on the civics examination portion of the U.S. citizenship test. So you can go to the website of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security's Citizenship and Immigration Services, and you can read the list of questions that any candidate for naturalization could be asked in the process of uh, achieving citizenship. One of the 100 questions that they have to study is, what is the economic system of the United States? Americans are capitalists. Because of that, we are all consumerists. We are all conditioned to want more and better in our faith, in our relationships, in our economic circumstances. 
embedded in our notion of Christianity is a path of upward mobility. Technology, scientific discovery, medical advancement, space telescope images, GDP, gas mileage on my Prius, my child's SAT scores. And here's an old chestnut from today's reading that is used a lot to rationalize what I think is a faulty approach. Philippians 3.14, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward. Okay, yeah, but, right? I do believe that we are constantly being remade and remade in God's image. God is the author and perfecter of our faith. And we are refined by the refiner's fire when we let God work in us. But that does not mean we will trend upward spiritually, economically, educationally, professionally, personally. You might not be happier and better off in 10 years. You might not be happier, you, not, you might not be happy right now, and it might not get better. You may never have your big break. What if, in fact, your circumstances become materially or professionally or personally worse? What if things fall apart? Guess what? Things are going to fall apart at some point. Can you be faithful in a downward trend? Can you see God in the midst of an ever-expanding vortex that is not your fault, it just is? Because we are consumerists, I think that we are transactional in our faith, whether or not we realize it. I think that's because we're transactional in most things in our lives, but that's another sermon for another day. Uh, and so I think that because we are transactional, we are fundamentally unable to appreciate God's grace. We think of ourselves as always in God's debt. And we don't think of God's gifts as truly free. Someone always has to pay for something. So if I accept God's grace, that means I'm going to have to live my life in a persistent state of guilt and shame. Absolutely not. God is free. God's grace is free. The debt has been paid. Do not carry that around with you. The way we view church is actually very capitalist as well. We literally shop for churches. I want a church that's aesthetically pleasing without being too ornate. I really like stained glass, but nothing too gaudy. But I also don't want like a puritanical white box. Uh, 
oh, and there need to be certain kinds of ministries, but the ones that matter to me and resonate with me. I don't really know what they are, but I'll know when I see it. And the music. <laughs> I mean, I can handle a baby grand piano, but no organ. And definitely no drum kit. Ugh. Right? I want a choir with matching robes. I want them to sway in unison. <laughs> I have had people literally tell me that they stopped attending a church because there wasn't enough off-street parking. Friends, church is not Panera. It is not the why. It is the ecclesia, the body of Christ, a community of believers caring for one another. That's it. Lastly, Americans are exceptional. We are so remarkable that we have tied up our own story as a nation with the story of Christ. We were living as subjugated to tyranny, King George, sin, but we defeated that tyranny and now we live in liberty, prosperity, and the pursuit of happiness through the American Revolution and the cross of Christ. And alongside our independence story is an equally powerful narrative of European immigrant America as the new Israel. To be clear, there are many, many people for whom that narrative of the new Israel has never and never will apply. The millions of enslaved Africans who were brought to our shores did not share this vision nor did the hundreds of thousands of Chinese people who came to mine and farm and build railroads before the passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act. But so powerful is the pull of white supremacy that even for Americans of non-European descent, this new Israel narrative has predominated. In the mid-19th century, my great-great-grandparents moved from Eastern Germany, which was then Pomerania, to present-day Romania Moldova, which was then known as Bessarabia or Southern Russia. Okay. And they did so to establish communities for German Baptists who were persona non grata in their homelands. For reasons that are unclear to me, German Baptists were considered dangerously radical in their nation at that time. About 50 years later, my great-grandfather Thomas Lutz and his entire clan moved from a little town at the mouth of the Danube where it enters into the, empties into the Black Sea. They moved to the prairies of the Midwest. And in 1898, Thomas received 160 acres in Carrington, North Dakota, through the Homestead Act. So per the government mandate, he dug a well and he began cultivating the land to improve it. Improve it. 
I would like to think that my great-grandfather understood the social and political context in which he was inserting himself. I would like to think that he was really empathetic to the plight of the Yonktonai and the Ochetisakuin people whose land he was appropriating. At the very least, I would like to think that he was wholly ignorant that he was stealing the land of others. But I'm not sure that he did, and that is very hard for me to accept. I have no proof, historically, of his motives. But my hunch, based on the documentation that I do have, is that my great-grandfather, a man of reportedly stalwart faith, who had planted and pastored many churches in Russia, that he saw in that move to North Dakota continued opportunities to plant more churches on a new continent. Thomas Letts was very likely one of thousands of European immigrants to come to North America who co-opted this narrative of the new Israelites as God's chosen people seeking a promised land. Because if North Dakota was the promised land, then all the struggles that they endured, like carving a life out of nothing in a very harsh climate, and political persecution, and social ostracization, ostracization, and drought, and death, all those things somehow would make sense. They were fulfilling the Great Commission. They were fulfilling Christ's directive to witness to Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And North Dakota was the end of the earth. <laughs> Look at our passports. Amber waves of grain, purple mountains majesty, the faces of political patriarchs carved in stone. They are literally larger than life. The U.S. government took a sacred mountain from the Lakota Sioux people and made it their own. We have memorialized these men. We have made them fixed and immovable. We took rock and we carved ourselves into it. And this is where it gets even trickier. So in the mid-1930s, my grandfather Frederick came to Rochester with his younger brother Gustav to study at Rochester Theological Seminary, which is the precursor to Colgate-Rochester-Crozer Divinity School. Gustav graduated in 1940, and he was ordained, and he served for a short time as the pastor of a Baptist church in northern New Jersey, before he voluntarily enlisted in the U.S. Army as a chaplain. And tragically, Gus was killed in April 1945, just weeks before the cessation of the war in Europe, at the Battle of Remagen in Belgium. He was on the bridge that the Nazis blew up. 
As first-generation German-Americans, my grandfather and his siblings were avowed anti-Nazis. They clearly saw Nazism as a bastardization of the ideals of Christianity, and they had no trouble reconciling their heritage and their nationality because they understood that God had brought their family to North America for a particular purpose, to spread the good news and win souls for Christ. They worked hard to embody every American virtue, which included volunteering for national service to fight the forces of evil. And my grandfather would be horrified if confronted with the brutal statistic that the War of Discovery, which is really what brought the Lutzes to North America, he would be horrified to know that it had a whopping 96% rate of genocide of the continent's indigenous people. Whereas Nazi Germany had a genocide rate of 35% for Jewish people. If my grandfather and my great uncle Gus had known that they were part of a genocidal process, far larger than the final solution, they would be heartbroken. Because they saw themselves as God's freedom fighters, and Gus was a kind of sacrificial lamb to the greater cause of restoring justice to the earth. And here is the paradox. I come from people who benefited directly from the subjugation and destruction of others, while at the same time heralding themselves as holy warriors. Mark Charles and Sun Chang Ra, they write, we have been trained to read the scriptures especially Old Testament, incorrectly. We have been taught to put ourselves in the place of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We read the Old Testament as if the United States is the chosen people of Israel. But in the Old Testament narrative, Americans would be citizens of the pagan nations. Hope for the United States does not emerge from being the promised and chosen people like the Jews, but instead we take our hope from how God treats other nations in the biblical narrative. We are loved by God and we live in God's mercy and grace, not as the chosen ones, but as the pagan nations. Everything we thought we understood about our citizenship is flipped on its head. We should be proud of our nationality and our culture in the same way that we should be proud of our gender and our sexuality and our neurodiversity and the various gifts and talents that God has given us. 
But I believe that if we can become more aware of the ways that our culture has shaped the way that we live and think and move and operate, we will be better citizens of this homeland and better citizens of heaven. Jesus understood how difficult it was to overcome the thrust of empire because he lived in it and he was a victim to it. But fortunately for us, Jesus was not and is not and never will be interested in earthly kingdoms. Matthew 4 tells us that Jesus had his chance at empire. Satan offered it. He strongly rejected it. And in John 16, after he fed the 5,000 and the people came looking for him, clamoring for him to become their political leader, Jesus hid from them. He was not concerned with his political power. He was primarily and counterculturally concerned for the care of the community, particularly those living in the margins. Friends, God exists beyond our agendas, personally and nationally. I believe that our faith is stronger, more nuanced, more sensitive, more responsive when we truly identify as citizens of heaven. Because citizens of heaven look to the margins to pull in those who are suffering, and they look up to be filled and constantly refilled with God's endless love. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com. 